Hey everybody, special announcement from the Bookening. Pastor who's a master of reading about to give you the deets. Hey guys, if you are anywhere near Madison, Wisconsin on September 22nd, you will definitely want to come to Red Village Church at 6 p.m. to experience the first ever Bookening live show. That's right. All three of us are going to be there and it's going to be awesome and we'd love to see you. We'd love to meet you. We'd love to hang out with you. That's at Red Village Church at 6 p.m. on September 22nd. Uh, if you go to our social media, you'll be able to see addresses, maybe find the Facebook event, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So be sure to plan to drive. The name of this live show is The Bookening Presents! Exclamation point, art and Arts Place! Colon, lessons from Shakespeare, Austin, and Tolstoy on how to stop being a pretentious poser and start making a difference. Nice. That's a good title. <laughs> Bit of a mouthful, but... Good title. I, I think that's probably worth driving at least four hours for. Yep. So Maybe. if you're like within four hours of Madison, Wisconsin, we expect to see you there. We are going to be driving more than that ourselves. Overrun Red Village Church. Do it. Yeah. Do it. Do it. Do it. Coming up next, the bookening doesn't read Blood Meridian. Hey everybody, welcome to The Booking. This is Nathan Alberson, joined by my good friend, well I should say, I'm your humble and obedient host. I'm joined by my good friend, Brandon Chastine. Hey. The scholar who's a baller of reading, mm-hmm. PhD, ABD, or if you ask the fine citizens of Sanityville, a professor of English literature. I wonder how that works. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Hey, you can be a professor of literature with a master's degree. Hey, that's true, which you've got. I do. So, yeah, there you go. That's all you need in Sanityville. That's all I need. For the University of... Sanity, I'm sure it has something. Yeah, I mean, I it's it's fun. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Some good comp courses, some mm-hmm. good lit courses. That's all a man needs. Yeah, exactly. Jake's not here. He's on what? the phone right now. Oh, good. I thought he was scalping Indians. Nope. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> scalping Native Americans, Brandon. Native Americans, yeah. um, Nathan. No, he's uh, right, he's man. on the phone. He got a very important... Jake is just like, he's a CEO. He's an associate pastor. He's he an important guy. He gets uh, important phone calls. Yep. And so he got one, and we just said, you know what, we're going to start. Spoiler alert, Jake Correction. Didn't that. What's that? He made one. He made an important, that's true, yes. But he has to do that too as CEO, make important phone calls. Yeah, and as associate, I mean. All the time. Yeah, yeah. And, and this one, I dare say, it was more important than us. Yeah, I can't count how many times I've been talking to Jake, and he says, oh, wait, Brandon, I've got a phone call I need to make. It's mm-hmm. more important than you. Yeah. I just say, I know, Jake. And he puts it exactly like that. It's more important than you, you you worm, I yep. think. Is, 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 and I just is, say, hey, Jake, I know. Yeah. Do it. I, I'm a worm. Yep. The conqueror worm, as Edgar S- Allan Poe wrote. Yes, I am the conqueror worm. That's why I wear this crown. <laughs> Did you ever in your life enjoy the poetry of Edgar Allan Poe? No. No, actually, yes, I take that back. What's the one about the beach? The one about the beach. Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. Annabelle Lee? But the sea, Annabelle Lee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the one. The Annabelle Lee is actually the one? Yeah, yeah. that's it. She died by oh, the Well, I like the raven one. just fine. Yeah, the raven's obviously... Well, what, what's good about Edgar Allan Poe is that his poetry is very musical. You mm-hmm. can hear the music in his poetry. Yeah. I don't know if you can say much more for it than that. It's a good poetry to teach like a middle schooler about poetry because yeah. what it's doing is... I'm sorry if this sounds snobby or condescending. What it's doing is rather obvious. And so... Yeah, it's very metrical, very... Mm-hmm. Rhythmic, which is the same thing. Right. Has a lot of beat, which that's the same thing too. Feet, meter. (laughs) Yep. Those are all the same thing. (laughs) Rhyme, that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Rhythm and rhyme. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like the blues. Yep. I woke up this morning. With the blues? Mm Mm-hmm. What'd you do? No, I'm I'm waiting. (laughs) I woke up this morning. (laughs) With a slight headache. (laughs) Took some et cetera. And brushed my teeth and took a shower. And then I went to work at Warhorn. And it was good and recorded some podcasts. And that's the story of my day. 
Hey, let's talk about Blood Meridian. Let's talk about the fact, and then Jake will probably walk in at some point. He's on that important phone call. But let's just uh, talk about the fact that we decided not to finish Blood Meridian, actually. And I'm sorry. Um, For all of you scarred listeners out there that decided to finish. Yeah. And then me and Brandon have both read it before. And we both thought it was a good idea, or I—I I think I was the one pushing for it, actually. So I'll take some. I didn't stop you for that. You know, you certainly—you didn't stop me, but but I—I I wanted to do it because I remembered it being a masterpiece. I remembered it being the most violent book I'd ever read, but I also remembered it being a masterpiece. And I, I think I might kind of stand by both those statements in some ways. But the fact is, I didn't finish it this time. Jake has not read it before. He did not finish it. Brandon, did you finish I it? I did not finish it. You didn't finish it. Well, we'll talk about that. What's that sound? I don't know. It's the sound of the contextual Texan firing right. off his guns with a hail and hearty. Yeehaw! Let's and do this. Brandon, of course, he's from Texas. He's going to provide some much needed context for Cormac McCarthy before we talk about why we didn't actually finish reading Cormac McCarthy. So take it away, Brandon. Okay. Let's start where we always start, with a brief biography. A brief biography. Because bi- who doesn't want that? No, everyone does. Everybody does. Mm-hmm. So he was born in Rhode Island. Oh, that's interesting. Which is very interesting. Yeah. I think there are a couple of interesting facts to keep in mind. Um, we'll approach this kind of like we did with A.A., not A.A. Milne, with, uh, um, I always get these guys confused, but it's really sad, E.B. White. E.B. White. Or it was more biographical, mm-hmm. autobiographical, not autobiographical, biographical, right. our approach. So a couple of things to keep in mind. One, where he was born. Two, his religion as he grew up. Okay. I think these are really essential. And I, I think I've said before, and I can't remember which author made this point. I know there's a book by Walter de la Mare where he examines the childhoods of famous authors. Yeah. But some famous author has said before, you you never really grow out of your childhood. You're always just writing your childhood. Right. You see that with Dickens. I think he's one of the most prominent examples. Yeah, he's, he's a big, broad, splashy example of that. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, I think Cormac McCarthy will be too, and we'll talk about that. So he was born in Rhode Island. He was the third of six children, and he was the oldest son of Charles and Gladys McCarthy. Obviously, his last name is an Irish name. Mm -hmm. Irish heritage would become an obsession of his, especially in his childhood. In fact, apparently he gave himself the name Cormac. And some say he renamed himself after an Irish king. When he was first becoming a writer, he would get a grant, one of the numerous arts grants he would get. And mm-hmm. he would go with his first wife at the time. He was married three times, has been married three times. He would go with his first wife to Ireland because he wanted to visit a castle that was apparently built by a king, Cormac. Interesting. And so... I just assumed he was born in Texas or on the border or... No. I, I, without even thinking about it, I, no. I never would have suspected he was... The fact that he's in Rhode... Was born in Rhode Island kind of blows my mind and it's blowing it right now. Yeah. He was born in Rhode Island. He is a Yankee. That's so interesting and maybe even telling. Yeah. Um, I think he's very telling. Yeah. So his... Um, so anyway, so keep in mind, he's born in Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. What he would eventually write would be all about the South, all about, especially the Southwest mm-hmm. and the, the deep, uh, dark heart of Tennessee. And he has a obsession early on with his Irish heritage. He wants to be Cormac instead of what his name was, which is Charles. He was named after his father. He's Charles Jr. McCarthy, technically, is his name. That's These things are... I. I... Okay, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, this is I, great. I just watched the movie Three Billboards Outside Ebbing Whatever. Did By an see? Irishman. Yeah, did you see that movie? No, but I want to. I really like that playwright. Well, I like him too, although I'm not sure I'd recommend him to our no. dear listeners all that much. He falls in the same category as Cormac McCarthy and being incredibly violent. Yeah, that movie, I had some problems with it. I couldn't quite decide where the seat of the problem was, but one of my suspicions, and, and I, I only watched it recently, I haven't had a lot of time to think about it and really find out where I fall on it. It felt to me like he was writing an Irish play or, or the screenplay would have worked in an Irish setting. But the fact that it was set in Missouri felt off. Like hmm. if you just translate, if you just took the story and transplanted it to Ireland, all the characters' decisions and everything would make perfect sense. But the fact that it was set there, something just felt off about it. Well, there is a sense with Cormac McCarthy, and I think it's the same with Faulkner, that his stories are bigger than their setting. Mm-hmm. And that his stories attempt to make a mythology out of their place. Right. And I think that Martin McDonough does the same thing. And I think it's a very Irish impulse to try right. and mythologize your home. Right. So, I mean, one of the most famous examples would be Ulysses by James Joyce. Sure. Where he literally attempts to make a mythology out of Dublin, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, 
we're seeing the same impulse with Martin McDonough and now with Cormac McCarthy. Interesting fact, one of my, well, for people who like their Brandon facts. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I count myself among them. My my initial dissertation was going to be looking at Irish influences on Southern writers. Interesting. And so I was going to be looking at especially Flannery O'Connor and Cormac McCarthy. Hmm. And I was going to be seeing how their, their sense of their Irishness affected the way that they wrote. And then it slowly shifted over time to be what it became, which we'll actually talk about later too. Cool. So back to Cormac. Yes, back to Cormac. So he was named after an Irish king. Some also say that the McCarthy family was responsible for legally changing his name to the Gaelic equivalent of son of son of Charles. Hmm. And so he, I think, intentionally kind of keeps us in the dark. He's a famously a very private man. Intentionally keeps everything in the dark. Yeah. As far as in fact, there are only a handful of interviews he's given. There's one for the New York Times that I have up right here, um, where you, you even don't get a whole lot of out of that, out of that, except for the fact that he knows. One thing about McCarthy is he has a scientific knowledge of animals and plants mm-hmm. and the landscape. Like, as I, I noticed this first when I was reading All the Pretty Horses. He'll actually know like the scientific name for plants and, right. the, and all these brush and scrub things that you would not know how to describe. He'll actually know the name of them. So he knows the names of things. That's one of the best things about Blood Meridian is just the snowballing weight of all that arcana that he yeah. just keeps piling on. Uh, Very Moby Dickish. Yes, exactly. Moby so, Dickish, yes. And um, I like it. Mm-hmm. It gives you the sense of, well, we can talk more about it. Yeah. But just, yeah, people should know that that's something that he does. He actually, he'll give you the names of things. He knows the names, which I think as far as a writer, as far as someone who's in love with words and things, especially the way you can describe things, it's it's an admirable quality. Oh, I love, I, I, I think even when I'm reading something like that and I don't know half of the words, there's a poetry, there's music to it. The, mm-hmm. Just the, the poetry of specific. I, I've always said... I think I've said it on this show. I much prefer someone to write, he drank a Coke to he drank a soda. Yeah. It's just, there's there's something, I mean, it gets weird with brand names like that, but there's just something about using the very most specific word that just lends, um, I don't know what it does, but I've just always specificity. liked it. Specificity. It, it lends, there's something about using a specific word that lends specificity, and there's just, there's a music to that that I have always really enjoyed. The names for flowers, the names for rocks, the names for places. Uh, if I'm reading a novel about New York, I want the person and to just name random streets that mean something to New Yorkers mean nothing to me, but there's poetry, there's music mm-hmm. to that. You, um, and you get this a lot with the writers who will be the contemporaries of uh, McCarthy with um, Philip Roth and mm-hmm. with Don DeLillo, some guys like that. Uh, Dennis Johnson sure. has a lot of that in his writing too. Yeah. Uh, one way you can look at it is that you know, everybody's obsessed now with the art of cooking. Everybody loves to think about elevating your meal with spices and right. things. So just like a good chef knows everything. So I was, I was, I've watched this show called the mind of a chef. It's really fascinating, especially this season about this barbecue guy out in um, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And one thing he knows is like all the names of the plants and stuff that are unique to South Carolina so right. that he can use those things in his cooking to make it taste better. Right. It's the same thing with a writer. Mm-hmm. The more, the broader your vocabulary and the actual, that vocabulary is attached to actual experiences that you've had the better your writing is going to be. Mm-hmm. So that one's for free. Yeah. What were we talking about? Oh, uh, Cormac McCarthy. I oh, think. yeah. Why? Why are we talking about Cormac McCarthy? <laughs> that was fun. I don't know. Okay. So then this is all before he's the age of four. He lives in Rhode Island. By the t- age of four, his father, who was an attorney, moves out to Knoxville, takes his family with him. And so he lives in Knoxville, Tennessee, mm-hmm. which is where we'll have the setting of most of his early books, The Mountains of mm-hmm. Tennessee. Yeah, what are those, the Appalachians? The Appalachians, the Appalachians yeah. however yeah. you say it. Uh, another important fact to realize about his childhood is that he was raised Roman Catholic, uh, and he was I actually he was, he was an altar boy, and he went to a Roman Catholic high school, and so a lot of his ex- early experiences would be very religious in tone. Keeping this in mind is important because I think that to understand McCarthy, you, underst- you have to understand him as being someone who's obsessed with religion, Mm-hmm. And also, uh, the, a person who's obsessed with finding out where he belongs, right? So you have this impulse towards religion, and there's also this impulse towards going to Ireland, finding my heritage. These are very Southern concerns, as, as we saw with uh, Faulkner, mm-hmm. right? So they're obsessed with within the South. And I think this is why he would then move. So we, it, it's weird, because he's Rhode Island, but his, all his themes are Southwestern. He writes about Texas. He writes about Tennessee, these are Southern places to write about. And it's because I think he finds his natural rhythm with other Southern writers. Yeah. So if you think about Faulkner, I think that's his closest analog we've read. He was obsessed with the South, 
but especially that county he made up, Yonkna because he wanted to, he was obsessed about blood lineage, home, places, and the way that that affects you and your identity. And he was also obsessed about how the religious culture of the South, the Baptists right. of the South, led to uh, this conviction that uh, God was judging the South. Mm. And um, Faulkner, I don't think, takes that seriously, and yet... He still writes about it. It comes up in his work all the time. Right. And we'll see it again with Flannery O'Connor, where she will take that and really run with it um, and actually have God judging the South, which right. is fun. She's kind of the culmination of all these trends. McCarthy fits naturally in there because he was Catholic, and yet he's no longer a Christian. I think he is pretty agnostic now. But you still see that impulse in his writings, this sense of ritual, which comes through in Blood Meridian with blood. I mean, blood is right. very tied to ritual. And then also this sense of exploration, pioneers, people trying to find a place where they can live and never finding it. So the end of um, No Country for Old Men, the dream that the sheriff has mm-hmm. is about his father continually just being out in front of him. Riding on ahead with the torch or something Yeah, and like him that. trying to get to his father. Right. But that sense of wanting to be somewhere where you belong with your father, but never being able to get there, that defines Cormac McCarthy. Yeah. This is what his writing is all about. And so then quickly to kind of finish up his... And that's without path. I mean, I think that's all bunk. I don't think that it's very, very, it's a very useful way of looking at the world. What that we're always trying to strive after. What are- yeah, what that produces in you is the sort of postmodern malaise and longing mm-hmm. that you get. Uh, there's a sort of sad beauty to it mm-hmm. if you can actually end up landing, right? Yeah, but it, it looks very beautiful in novels. In real life, it's gluttonous and it's oh what's the word it's suicidal it's suicidal yeah that's the way, because there's, there's no reason to go out and achieve anything you are not going to catch up with those who came before you you are not going to actually make a mark tommy lee jones is not going to save the day anton Shigar is not going to be defeated it's the best we can do is just kind of have deep beautiful musings about the pointlessness of it all yeah and mccarthy realizes that nostalgia is useless mm-hmm because he's always showing us how the past was just as violent as the present. Yeah. And so that's one of the things he does. We'll, we'll talk more about that. Hopefully Jake will be in here for that. Yeah. Okay, so we have his religion, and we have his sense of looking for who he is, his sense of search for identity. And this squarely puts him in why he fits perfectly in with postmoderns, is because a sense of religion without actually having a religion, right? just a sense of sort of a bigger purpose, fate, you see this all over his work. You yeah, see he it can all- lend this sort of sacred or numinous feeling to acts of violence, specifically. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's what... Um, oh, who's that really awful theologian? He's He used to be an English professor, and then he became one of the postmodern Christian theologians. Anyways, guys like him. Right. They're all about the numinous, about, like you said, this feeling of presence, this feeling of something bigger than we are, mm-hmm. yet without actually having anything that we have to account to. Right. And and in some sense, I don't know, I suppose we'll get to this, but McCarthy might be a slightly more honest version of of that than a lot of those guys because he at least sees the horror of existence and sees the wrath of God in some way and 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 channels that instead of channeling some kind of a mystic gnostic. His gnosticism is the gnosticism of violence and of depravity. That's what he sees as being bigger. You know, in in, in uh, Blood Meridian, it's war. It's this ongoing godlike judge who represents war and violence. And I would say, while that's bunk, there's a certain element of truth given man's depravity in that that you don't find in some of the more happy, clappy kind of mystic guys. Brian, Brian McLaren. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yuck. Yeah. Yuck. I have that one of those guy, that guy's books. Yuck. Yeah. He's bad. He's bad. He's just useless. Mm-hmm. But um, the sense of tragedy. But you're right. There, there is a sense of what he sees as the overarching fate, as this thing that's bigger than we are, would be violence. So mm-hmm. Anton Chigurh is the most famous example of this. Right. In No Country for Old Men, he comes in. He he represents the fate of death and chaos mm-hmm. that we'd have no control over it. And so characters die right. unexpectedly. Characters we expect to make it to the end are just suddenly floating in a pool right? three quarters of the way through. The wife at the end and that wonderful confrontation, which is better in the movie, I will go on record as saying. But she says, you know... 
Actually, I think that's one book, one movie that is better. I think it improves. Book, yeah. And I, I think the Coens, for all their weird amorality, actually have a better moral sense than McCarthy does. And that's yeah. why. But you, she says, the coin don't have no say. It's just you. And then he says, but I got here the same way that the coin did. And yeah, it's just that. It's fate. It's... Yeah. But what's interesting about that confrontation is I think it's McCarthy acknowledging that even his morality, that he's, mm-hmm. it's kind of pointless. Right. It, it, it itself has well, no legs to stand on. Well, I love the scene in the movie because the the woman says, the coin don't have no say, it's just you or whatever. Is that not in the on. book? No, that is. And then he says, but I got here the same way the coin did. And so it's like, <laughs> I don't want to be all uh, cheesy about this, but it's like she's saying, no, you have personal agency. Yeah. You're responsible before God. I mean, she's kind of in a weird way preaching the gospel to him. And then he's saying, no, I'm just an agent of chaos. I'm just an agent of fate. And so they their, their worldviews come into conflict with each other but in the book it goes on for three more pages of dialogue yeah and Um, in the movie it ends there yeah it ends there but the book goes on with Anton Chigurh destroying her verbally for another three pages and it's much more weighted towards him I completely forgot that but yeah in the in the movie it lets her win Mm -hmm. basically yeah because he looks disturbed and then he goes out and he gets hit by the car which is which is beautiful because you see that he himself is subject to his own chaos right so yeah it's the Coen's actually doing McCarthy one better Jacob Menzel just walked in pastor who's a master of reading he's I'm sure going to have lots of wonderful thoughts about why he loves Cormac McCarthy oh yeah so many thoughts about how much I love McCarthy but Brandon is just in the middle of giving us some context, Jake. Sweet. Don't let me interrupt you. Yeah. Slam in the door and... No, didn't interrupt me at all. This agent of chaos. Mm-hmm. He's got yeah. his coin. He's about to flip it. Yep. And then he'll take one of those cattle uh, things and... One of us will be dead by the end of this. One of us will be dead. No, not a pride. <laughs> it's a man that hasn't read No Country for Old Men. Or seen the movie. Or seen, seen the, the movie. movie. That's he'd, true. He'd remember it's the cattle thing. Something that I, have, I work hard to avoid admitting. Well, it's just one of those movies that everybody has seen. Everybody assumes that you've seen and it's good, but also a lot of dumb people would say it's their favorite movie. Ah, well, this doesn't surprise me about McCarthy. Um, So it's just like, we'll talk about some of this with Flannery O'Connor too, where I love that we're doing both in the same year. Huh? I love that we're both, I love that we're doing them both in the same year. They they reflect each other. It's good to, yeah. I mean, one of the most disgusting people I ever, I've ever known, thinks that Flannery O'Connor is the greatest writer ever, and refers to her as the love, the always lovely Flannery O'Connor, and oh. it's just not way that I would describe her. The always lovely, yeah. Do I know? No, this you wouldn't know. The, you no, uh, you'd know this okay. guy. <laughs> Flannery O'Connor, the always lovely. The I always think that's the way a, I'd describe her. Or maybe it was ever lovely. Well, this is. Uh, I've had so many, and we'll talk about this with Flannery O'Connor. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I love about her yeah. is the fact that a lot of the people who claim that they like Flannery O'Connor are the exact sort of people who would die in one of her <laughs> That's stories. what I was hoping oh, you would say. That's uh, so they, true. They are written into her stories. Yeah, right. And so right. <laughs> everything that rises must converge specifically. Yeah. That guy loves to read Flannery O'Connor. I can almost guarantee it. The guy on the bus yeah. whose mom has a stroke oh, or whatever. Oh, yeah. yeah. And thinks right. that he gets yeah. her. That yeah. proud, I was trying to remember which one that yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, it's, it's, for whatever reason, it's not one of her more splashy stories, but that one's always stuck in my head as a painful, painful story. Yeah. No, um, she's great. When and that guy, that, so. I guarantee that guy likes to just sit around and read Flannery O'Connor. So and fun she fact. got his number. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll talk more about Flannery um, O'Connor. By which, the way, just speaking of Flannery O'Connor, I've had, never mind, I should save all my contacts for, or baggage for, I have not wanted to read her. No, me neither. Neither have I. At all. Like, I read A Good Man is Hard to Find, and then I looked up and saw what the next one was, which is The River, and I just, multiple times have opened to The River and just closed the book and said, nope. Yeah. I've had the same. I've had yeah, the same reaction. I don't. I don't know. I we all we this podcast exists uh, because of the river. Because of the river, we read it on Brandon's porch, and we all cried, and we decided, and then later, you know, maybe a year or two later, we were trying to think of podcasts or whatever. It wasn't and, even that long um, later, but it is what it is where the seed was sown in your mind. Yeah, it's it just uh, when we, me and Jake were getting beginning to think about podcasts, I just thought, you know, we need some guys with chemistry that are friends that like to talk and I remember that time on Brandon's porch. And have something specific to talk about. Right. So anyway, that's a little teaser for Flannery O'Connor. Fun fact about Cormac McCarthy, born in Rhode Island, Roman Catholic, second one not surprising. First one I thought was a little surprising. But, two ma- two yeah. major themes to keep in mind. Yes. You you'd pe- peg him as more of a southerner. Well, I mean, that's what he writes about. Not to be boringly obvious, but yeah, I mean, why not? He writes. Because he's Southern Gothic. 
Yeah. He, doesn't, he doesn't really write what he knows. Right. But he did grow up in Knoxville, Tennessee, but he was also upper middle class. His father was a lawyer. He went to Catholic uh, schools and then went to University of Tennessee. So he, it wasn't like he was living the life of the Sutries. Right. <laughs> or even anybody that he writes about. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting. So at least Faulkner lived in Mississippi, right? Mm-hmm. And knew that place, like the back of his hand. Twain as well. I mean, it's it's a famous dictum that writers write what they know. know. Yeah. So it's interesting with McCarthy that he really has learned mm-hmm. these places as he's grown. Right. Um, so, yes. So the, the, then to wrap up his bio, he went to university, didn't finish, went off into the Air Force, where he would actually spend two years in Alaska, I think, uh, hosting a radio program. <laughs> interesting. Uh, yeah. And I was hoping that he was going to have brains on his boots by the end of this military tour, but no, that he's hosting. I mean, he's, he was basically Robin Williams in good morning, Vietnam. Wow. One wants the, one wants him to have gone, you know, into the heart of darkness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in Alaska, I'm sure because when he, it might've been with his second wife, it was, it was one that he ends up moving back to Tennessee and he built his own house out of a barn. He like would put the stones on the wall. He built his own fireplace with bricks from James Hagee, who was a famous Southern writer. He wrote, let us now praise famous men. It's, it's great. It's a book. It's a book of depression era photos. And then he would write essays about these families. And it was three tenant families during this era. I think it's much, I think it's actually, if I have to recommend a book on that era between like the grapes of wrath and let us now praise famous men, I would recommend let us now praise famous men. I think it's better. Okay. So uh, I don't know where I fall in grapes of wrath, so I will not comment right now. So anyway, so that's, he was, and he was building a library the whole time. In this one interview I see here, he has over 7,000 books in his library. Um, I'm guessing he's an avid reader, but again, he's pretty closed about what he was doing during this period of his life. Well, Blood Meridian is based on several sources that he's obviously read. The diary of, I think, Samuel Chamberlain, one of the people that rode with uh, Glanton and uh, talks about a man named Judge Holden. And so there's a ton of reading that he did that's evident just in what we see. Putting together these things. What's that? Putting together his books. Yeah, putting together his books, yeah. His rise as a writer was uh, kind of slow, actually. He wrote his first book in 1965. That's The Orchard Keeper. So he would have been what? If he was born in, did we say what year he was born? We didn't say what year he was born. What year was he born? Born in 33. So he would have been 32 when his first book was published. And it was praised by the critics, but not really a a huge success. He had a good uh, editor, um, and he would stay with his editor for a while. It would actually be at the death of that editor, though, that he would begin to have his uh, rise to fame with all the pretty horses. But Mm. that wouldn't be until... 1994. So he had this period of about 30 years where he was more of a hipster writer right. for those who were in the know. Well, and there's a distinctly different feel to once all the pretty horses is it's much more lean. And then when you get to the road and uh, yeah. no country for old men, they're very streamlined and easy to read compared to. Yeah. His style does change. Yeah. And so then you have these, this early year, this first, the blue period of Cormac McCarthy where he's writing. And this has some of his most famous work. You have Child of God, Setri, and you have Blood Meridian all in this period. Blood Meridian is the culmination of this period. And this was written in 1985, the year that most of us here were born. Mm-hmm. So Jake was one year old when... That is the book that defines our birth year. Mm-hmm. Blood, Blood Meridian. Yep. yep. Not my birth year. Not your birth year. Nope. You were born on Blood Meridian Eve. Blood Meridian Eve, yeah. Oh, is that how my, my birth year is defined? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Everyone's year has to be defined around Blood Meridian. That's what I would decide. Yeah. And so there's, I mean, there's not a whole lot more to say about his life that would be interesting to the listeners. He had what you would typically expect of a writer's life. Uh, apparently he doesn't drink a lot. I've heard he gave up drink with his first, after his first wife. And he says, some, he has some f- funny line. Apparently he's a good talker and he likes to tell stories, even though he's very reserved. Well, the dialogue is great in yeah. these stories. So I'd love to go sit down and yeah. talk to him. He has a hilarious interview with Oprah. Yeah, I've seen that, I think. Yeah. yeah. And it's not funny because he means to be funny. It's just because he it's awkward. makes it awkward for her. Right. I think he's doing it on purpose. Yeah. He knows uh, exactly how to give her an answer without <laughs> telling her yeah. one thing. Yeah, but he has. A t- so he went to like some artist colonies when he was er- uh, in early in his career. He got a whole lot of uh, fellowship fellowship grants, and actually, I think he wrote Blood Meridian with the MacArthur Genius Grant, which is I think we've seen another MacArthur Genius Grant. Is that what um the guy who wrote Martin Dressler? 
Uh, I think he got Steven a genius Millhauser. grant. Yeah. yeah, it would not surprise me at all. I think he, Don't remember I, th- I think he got a genius grant. Yeah. So, and then after '94, his career takes off. He writes his trilogy, which is the Border trilogy, and this is sort of defines what we know and think of Cormac McCarthy as now, mm-hmm. as a Western writer, basically as a uh, refined Louis Lamar. Mm-hmm. And so we have all the pretty horses. We have the crossing and cities of the plain, and then you get No Country for Old Men. The Coen Brothers make the, you have a bad make of all the pretty horses. Right, Billy Bob Thornton directed that, I think. Yeah, and then you have a good star uh, Aragorn or whatever. Matt, yeah, Matt Damon. Oh, played John Grady Cole. Yeah, it was Matt Damon. That's right. And Salma Hayek, I think, played Aragorn was in the road. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, that's right. Aragorn was in the road. So then you had, but then you had two good movies based on his books, which would be. No Country for Old Men and The Road. I've never seen The Road, actually. The Road's good. Yeah. So, yeah, and so that's that's Cormac McCarthy. He's fairly uh, reserved, like I said, so there's not a whole lot to read interview-wise. There are two. There's one good interview you can go and look at at the New York Times. Go look up New York Times, Cormac McCarthy. You'll get one that's archived. But basically all you're going to find out, like I said, is that he knows a whole lot about the Southwest countryside. Mm-hmm. So he it starts out by him saying, you know about Mojave rattlesnakes? That's the first question he asks to the interviewer. Right. And then he starts talking about how the venom works and stuff like that. So to me, that sounds like a man that knows how to, uh, Cormac McCarthy knows how to play Cormac McCarthy for exactly. an interviewer. Or, yeah, uh, he knows how to present himself. Mm-hmm. And so... Keep the mystery alive. Yeah. He has definitely learned this territory that he loves. He lived in El Paso for many years, and now I think he lives in New Mexico. So I guess just the only other thing to do would be to put him in where he is with literary history. He writes, this is really not a period we've seen a whole lot of. We have read Ishiguro, so we talked a bit about it there. But Ishiguro is even a little bit later than Cormac, because when I was going to write my dissertation, Mm -hmm. I was going to start with Faulkner with his last book, which is just a short little play about nuns. And then I was going to end with The Orchard Keeper, because they were both published in the mid-60s. And so you have the old guard with Faulkner, and then you have the new guard with Cormac McCarthy kind of carrying on that tradition. And I do think the best way to think of Cormac McCarthy is carrying on what Faulkner started, this sort of biblical heavy prose that's attempting to mythologize place without any sense of God, mm-hmm. right? Trying to desperately put meaning into existence or not even desperately put meaning into existence, just show us that the only thing that can give meaning to existence is art. Mm-hmm. Right. And that is the stance that most postmoderns will take. Life is meaningless. Your father is awful. This is Faulkner. Right. Yes, you are connected to them by blood. And really, the only way to come to terms with that is through literature, through film, through art, or through philosophy. And by this time, philosophy has just basically become another art. It's not really a rigorous practice of a logic anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, there's a reason that so many of these philosophers today are read in English programs and then used to help study literature. It's, it's not because they're doing good philosophy. It's because they're doing bad philosophy because they're just trying to do art. Sure. Because everybody just thinks the only way to come to terms with reality is through art, which just leads you to be depressed and you kill yourself like David Foster Wallace. Right. And then they even try to make that beautiful, like everybody did with Anthony Bourdain's death. Like yeah. his death was just so tragic, but... Also, there's a sense of beauty to it somehow, which is perverse. Yeah. But mm-hmm. you have to try and make life mean something. And so Cormac McCarthy does it through fate and through violence and through sort of the catharsis of having these stories that show us that reality is this way and it is this heavy, but in the face of this, what are you going to do? So this puts him squarely in postmodernism, like I've said. And if we look around who was writing at the time, you would have Samuel Beckett was actually at the late part of his career as Cormac McCarthy was beginning to write. But he really doesn't fall in that camp of the absurdist postmoderns. He's kind of like Ishiguro in that he's his own animal. He's not writing what you would typically think of postmodern literature being which is absurdist and nonsensical. And a good modern example would be uh, that filmmaker, the guy who did Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Oh, Michael Gondry or whatever. Michael Gondry and the guy who wrote it. Oh, Charlie Kaufman. Charlie Kaufman. Who's... He's genius. Yeah. But that's postmodernism. Yeah. Very um, self-aware. You're supposed to be very aware that you're looking at art and you're supposed to feel good about yourself and preferably with a scarf Mm -hmm. and an espresso. Right. But that's not what Cormac, Cormac McCarthy's doing. He's not that kind of postmodern, but he still is postmodern at heart in the sense that he's given up one truth and he's going to now give his own spin on, okay, if there is no truth, what is reality? And for him, like we've said, it's violence and fate. 
And so that's that would I would argue that he is a postmodern. But as, a, as we'll see over and over again when we talk about postmodernism, that because it, I think it has to do with the nature of postmodernism mm-hmm. that it's like a thousand-headed dragon. Sure. Well, he's also postmodern in the sense that what he's doing is uh, what the kids like to call meta. It, his work does not exist except for <laughs> as a reaction to other work, unless you have John Wayne, unless you have the clean, sanitized West. What we're seeing him do, rubbing our nose in the degradation of the West, doesn't actually make sense. Unless we had an idea of American exceptionalism, what he's doing, showing how gross that actually was. You know, this is all reprocessing forms. It's taking things mm-hmm. that have traditionally been portrayed. Blood Meridian specifically is taking, and I think all his books in, in their way are taking things that have been portrayed as manly, as American, as whatever, as heroic, and he's just so reinterpreting them. Yeah, No Country for Old Man men does that with the apocalyptic literature. Mm-hmm. Or you mean... Uh, Post-apocalyptic. Road. The Road. That's yeah. right. The Road. No Country for Old Men, I think, might be my favorite of his works because it's explicitly doing that, and it does it in a I want to say kind of beautiful way. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm specifically thinking of the Coen Brothers movie when I say that. So I think they are actually just better than Cormac, as we said. Yeah. And so in that sense, he's postmodern in that he's playing with forms and Mm -hmm. ideas that he's inherited. Right. He's not political. I don't get the sense that he's ever really political with his work, which is that actually is a very postmodern bent as well. To be political. Yeah, Yeah, to be political. Mm -hmm. Salman Rushdie has some of that in his, Mm -hmm. but we haven't read him yet. Yeah, so maybe we never will. Maybe we will. We haven't. What's that sound? Oh, it's the airplane going over. You know what? We're really just going to spend the next, rest of this time. I've already teased people, Jake, that we didn't. None of us actually finished the book. Me and Brandon have read it before. You have not. So we're kind of talking about baggage. We're also kind of wrapping the episode up and wrapping McCarthy up here. Yep. So I don't know how we want to go about it. I do. There are a few other things worth saying, maybe about the novel, and I don't want to give short shrift, especially if I feel bad if people out there did read it based on our recommendation or whatever. Um, it wasn't a recommendation. We don't give a recommendation until we're done with our books. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's um, the risk of the bookening. Yeah, we, I, I don't know how to say this. We reserve the right to make mistakes and we kind of have to because we have to take some risks and try some things. And year three has been the year of experimentation in my mind. I wanted to... Well, and you probably said at the top of the show that McCarthy is widely considered to be the greatest living author and Blood Meridian is widely considered to be his greatest book. We, so. did, we actually didn't say that, but that's important to note. It's, yeah, it's, I guess I should that say that. That is why we chose it. Yeah. It's because he's widely considered to be the greatest living author and this is widely considered yeah. to be his greatest book. Mm-hmm. And Harold, Harold Bloom says that there are four um, great living authors. Philip Roth, Cormac McCarthy, um, Don DeLillo, and the one that hides. It's Pynchon. Pynchon, Thomas yeah. Pynchon. And of those four, Cormac McCarthy is the greatest. And his greatest book is Blood Meridian. And it's the greatest book since As I Lay Dying. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah that's Harold Bloom. That's and, Harold Bloom. And he's not the only famous literary critic to put, to basically go ahead and canonize yeah. McCarthy while he's still alive. Like many people would put McCarthy up there with, certainly with Faulkner. And, Definitely with Faulkner. But then this book, people, it's, uh, have been considering it canon or mm-hmm. inevitable. I think it'll, it will be. The I, I, I think it might be. Yeah. I, I, we, we may or may not like it, but I think it might be canon. He, yeah. He's often seen as a contender for the Nobel Prize. So, yeah. Well, how do we want to do this? Uh, let's just talk about our baggage, but also talk about what happened and why we didn't finish it. And let's just have that discussion. And if there's anything else that needs to be said about the book, I think it can come out. I will say Harold Bloom also tried to read the book twice and couldn't get through it and then finally got through it and then said he was the greatest living author and it was his best novel, just to put what Brandon said in context. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I didn't know that. Jake, what baggage did you bring to this novel? And Um, what did did you think about it? We'll just... Yeah, before yeah. before this year, I'd never read McCarthy. You already well, said you did, had not seen, and I've not seen a McCarthy uh, a movie based on a McCarthy book. So earlier this year, I had had a copy of The Road given to me, and I found some time. I'd worked myself too far ahead in our bookending schedule, and found some time, picked up and read The Road, and I enjoyed it. I mean, does one ever really enjoy a McCarthy novel? That's a different question. I thought it was a good book. Mm-hmm. And I didn't foresee, based on the road, any any trouble with Blood Meridian. It made me actually more excited about Blood Meridian, that Blood Meridian was going to be supposed to be much better than the road. I got into the road, or into Blood Meridian. It's very different stylistically than the road. Mm-hmm. Much denser. 
much more dense, much more flowery. And uh, stylistically, the road is 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 a wee bit more stark, at least to my memory. Although it had its flowery places. No, I think that's very true. I think that's the different. I think that's the demark well, the line of demarcation between all his early stuff and then all the pretty horses on is is that it's very. I don't know if it was just an editor or what, but it's it's his later writing is very different. <laughs> he does have a new editor. Yeah. with the, all the pretty horses. Yeah, the first before. couple of chapters in, I was just sort of trying to get comfortable in the book and getting a getting a feel for it then i don't know third or fourth chapter was this really beautiful passage of them riding through the desert at night and it was just pure poetry and then the chapter ended with one of the most horrific scenes i've ever read in my life <laughs> was that the, the uh, native american attack whatever <laughs> yeah it ends with the apache attack which is really brutal i thought about quitting right there and then i thought well maybe he does what a lot of books do and he shocks you up front and then chills out after that right so i kept reading <laughs> sucker <laughs> nope. and, yeah no and then i quit again and then i re- literally ran out of things to read and i read a couple more chapters and and then i quit for good around chapter 11 or 12 what is that halfway i don't I, even remember i don't remember, oh, I don't remember. it just gets worse mm-hmm. yeah and I, it ends i know awful. Nathan has told me some of the stories. Not He's not told me the stories. He's just hinted at some of the scenes that I have avoided. I don't regret avoiding them. I come away from this book thinking, what a incredibly horrible waste of talent. There's just not, there are a lot of things to read and a lot of good, there are a lot of good books out there. It's a shame that he has to, that he's so intent on bending all of his talents to be so do such a beautiful job at describing everything depraved and ugly yep. and wicked and evil in this world and I don't need to live there and I don't want to live there so there that's my that's uh fair I I may push back on that in a couple of minutes but let's a little bit or not I'm not sure Brandon your thoughts your baggage my thoughts or my baggage or both both my baggage is I read Blood Meridian. Man, I don't remember when. I was in high school. Mm-hmm. That's Love the time to read. Well, that's not the time to read it. That's an interesting time to read it because I really think someone who's a high school boy is the person that's the most desensitized to violence because they haven't really watched anyone die in their life, probably. They haven't experienced a lot of physical pain. They, they can compartmentalize that kind of stuff. I'm not saying that they should. I'm not saying it's healthy. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just explaining why I think young men end up enjoying these books more than certain other people do. I think they're actually able to find a place to put something like the Comanche attack in their brain where it doesn't really hurt them in a way that someone who's maybe lived a more, little more life is just like, no, this stuff is real. This is like, this is how this would hurt. <laughs> like they just, they read it as if they, they, they do, they do it the dignity. I think a, an adult reader of this book does the dignity of actually gives the book the dignity of actually letting it hurt them of, of actually feeling the violence in a way mm-hmm. that maybe a kid doesn't. But anyway, I don't yeah, know. I don't remember feeling the violence right at that age. So yeah, so I read Blood Meridian, and then I read his other stuff when I got into college. Have you um, read all his stuff? Yeah, I've read all his stuff. So, And he was going to be a chapter of my dissertation, mm-hmm. the final chapter. So my dissertation was going to be looking at how these, these, this theme of judgment and this larger sense of fate and judgment played out in these writers. And so you're going to have Faulkner, then Flannery O'Connor, then Tennessee Williams, a book, a book of short stories called Hard Candy by him, and then... Um, Old uh, Carmike McCarthy mm. with the Orchard Keeper. It's a murderer's row right there. Oh, yeah, it is. But there's a reason because they're all dealing with that sort of theme in a different way. So, yeah, so I really liked Cormac McCarthy. I really enjoyed No Country for Old Men. I'm a big fan of the Coen brothers. Sure. Like, oh, brother, art thou, as we all know. Yes, your favorite film. So, and then we get, and it's been what, seven or eight years since I've read McCarthy at this point. And we are going to read Blood Meridian f- for this podcast. I start reading it and have the same sense that Jake has, that um, it's violent and profane and disgusting. And what a waste of talent. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that scene in the second chapter, it's awful. And there's no reason to read that sort of stuff. And there's no reason to let yourself read it and see those images, especially with a writer as good as this that can make you see those images. Right. Um, He should have put his talents to better use. He's a master of painting a scene. Yeah. And he did not put his talents to better use, and he'll 
be accountable for that. I read this book in my early 20s, read most of his more famous stuff. I haven't read a lot of the really, really early stuff like Orchard Keeper, but I've read No Country. I've read All the Pretty Horses. I've read The Road. I've read this. And I thought this was a masterpiece when I first read it and really liked it. I was really trying to give myself to it again because I just thought, you know, sure, it's the most violent book ever, but it kind of earns its place just by sheer force of will, by sheer artistry. This book, if anybody in the world ever, you know, maybe no one can do it except for him, but if somebody is going to just take this material and somehow wrestle it into art, into something worth reading, it's this man with these words doing it. And I wanted that to be true. But it wasn't. I mean, it's pretty gross. It's also stupendous. I mean, I'm not going to pretend like there's not genius level work being done here. There just is. He's a genius. I mean, it. this is a great book in its way. Also, nobody should probably read it. Um, <laughs> we should put it in the restricted section. Like yeah. in the Vatican. Yeah. Well, I mean, also, especially when at you Hogwarts. realize... when you so what? At Hogwarts. Yeah, we have yeah. our own little restricted section now. We've started mm-hmm. our own Hogwarts school. Yeah. Yeah, people should know that about the beginning. <laughs> especially when you actually read the stories and read the history and realize he's not just making it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually... That was part of why what kept me reading it was doing a little Wikipedia bounce to see th- this book was based on memoirs and other stuff that like, okay yeah uh, and to me that that gives it some credibility uh, that that actually i don't know you could say that just makes it that much more sicker i think jake felt that much more dirty reading the book and i don't because it was it. based on fact i mean I, i'm not saying that that's wrong i'm i mean well, I think, one of the, the counter argument to that would be well wouldn't we want our art to be based in truth and don't we want it to show so the cool kid sipping coffee in New York City. Mm, with his scarf. Yeah, he's going to tell you all about how the grit and stuff here really helped share the gospel because it shows us depravity in a way that sitting here in this room with, you know, kids' paintings on the walls can't show us. Well, my answer to that is... But that would, so that would be the argument, right? That's right. a fair representation, yeah. I think. I, I think it's fair. I, I don't know. I mean, my answer to that is I don't, I don't really need that. I, I spent a lot, just take it from me, someone who spent the first two decades of his life and, and maybe a, and change, thinking he really, really, really had to be in touch with his dark side and had to understand. And I, I think I actually do understand my own depravity about as well as anyone I know. Maybe that's a bold or outrageous claim. I apologize if it is, but. Well, I think the part of what's ridiculous about the person sitting in New York City is the fact that they think that they need a book like Cormac McCarthy's to show them depravity without... Yeah, so that's what, what I was going to say. Just, just look at how you treat your mom. Yeah. Just look at how you treat your wife. Just look at how you treat your kids. Just pay attention to yourself for one day and realize that if someone cuts you off in traffic, you want them to die and you would be happy if they were dead. Feel the anger in, in yourself. Feel the fact that you are a Cormac McCarthy. You know, you're, you're, you're the kid. You're the judge. You, you, you don't need these depraved, super genius artists to tell you what's obvious in the scripture and in life to anyone with eyes to see i don't know yeah they're just they're lying or they've already lied about themselves they just don't want to see who they are Mm -hmm. they want to think that things are worse out there and so somebody could have the art this art to show them depravity but it's not really saying anything about well it's cathartic if you read it and other people you don't ever have to read about it in your own heart that's right you know well and i don't discount the fact that it is cathartic to read literature and to realize that other people, other humans across history and even now have experienced the same things. I don't mind that. What I think McCarthy, where I think McCarthy goes wrong is not even in necessarily depicting some of this stuff. What is really relentlessly, gruesomely horrible about McCarthy is that there's no acknowledgement of common grace even. Mm-hmm. There's just nobody that's good yeah. in the book. There's there's not even someone who's presented as fake good so that they can then be crushed. There's nothing. There's just no grace in this story. And that's just not, it's a lie. We're, yeah. we, we're, he is actually not giving a hi- the history as it happened. Mm-hmm. I know I just said it's sickening to see how close it is. But the fact is, there are moments of mercy in real life, even among pagans. There are moments of tenderness. There are moments of kindness. There are moments of grace and generosity. And in his world, it's just Darwinian. It's just purely animalistic. It's just, I'm going to cut this guy's head off because he insulted me. And I'm going to gouge out this guy's eye because he wouldn't give me a drink. And we're going to do other things that I don't even feel comfortable mentioning. And it's just, 
it's actually not how the world works, even in horrible, you know, people will maybe, maybe the hipster with the scarf will come back and say, well, what about Cambodia? What about the Holocaust? What about this? What about that? You can find grace. You can find God's kindness in those situations too. I'm not being naive when I say that. It's just Mm, true. And then the other perverse thing that happens with this is that you end up actually learning to take a sense of pleasure in your ability to see how awful sin is. Mm -hmm. Because what it does is this book makes violence beautiful. Yeah. And it makes these awful things beautiful because of the language, because of the style. It's the same thing that um, Breaking Bad does with Walter White. Mm -hmm. And so anybody who ever tries to make the argument to me that, because I watched Breaking Bad. Sure. And they say, well, and I'm just looking at myself and why did I, what what feelings did I feel when I watched Breaking Bad? So anybody who tries to make the argument to me that Breaking Bad is a really great way to see depravity, it's like, no, because you kind of think Walter White's cool. I don't think and, there's any man that watched Breaking Bad that yeah. didn't secretly or not so secretly. I mean, a lot of the guys I know were just like, oh, this is awesome. I wish I could be like Walter White. And then you feel that same sort of postmodern malaise and sadness over sin mm-hmm. that really doesn't get you anywhere. It's the same place that Cormac McCarthy ends up that we were talking about earlier. Right. That ends in suicide with David Foster Wallace. Or just in a feeling that you get it, man. Mm-hmm. But it's not helpful to anybody. But you don't actually get it because in order to even read and enjoy and process the book, you have to, I don't know what the word is, aestheticize it so much. You have to make that Comanche attack into a work of art and divorce it from reality so much that you're not actually looking brutality in the face. You're finding another hipster way to remove yourself from the reality of violence and of depravity. You're processing it through the artistic genius of McCarthy in this case in such a way that you don't actually have to look full in the face because if you can read this book without (coughs) throwing it away, without putting it down, it's because you haven't actually thought about what it would feel like or what it would be like or how awful. It's because you've allowed it to just be a work of art. And there's something pretty perverse about that. So sorry if you read Blood Meridian because we decided we were going to read Blood Meridian. Even sorrier if you read it and liked it. Yeah, gross. Well... That's where I want to make a little space and say, there's part of me that gets it because he is a genius. I mean, how many different ways can you describe a sky and make it beautiful? Just even in the chapters that we all read, there must be like 20 plus descriptions of them riding under the sky and they're all the best. I mean, first of all, who, who, who would even dare be such a hack writer as to write about the sky, try and make poetry out of the most out of the stars. Out of the stars. I mean, come on. That's We've had 2,000, 4,000 years of that now. But then to be able to do it at the level that he does it and make you just feel the planets and the spheres like turning yeah. over these lonely men in the desert. And the, the void, the expanse, the mm-hmm. grandeur of and the insignificance and the... Yeah. Um, he, gives you, he gives you that moment. That was what I... I mean, the most taking bit of writing to me was that I guess it was the second chapter right where he puts you on a night back in the day under laying under the stars and feeling your own smallness and he does it in two sentences mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he does it better than anyone that I can think of Shakespeare I don't know who's that who else has done it as well as him so I'll make a little bit of space for people not to say that the book is good I think I think our judgments regarding it are accurate <laughs> people should abide by them but then he turns around and gives you that scene with the that attack in the same chapter yeah my mom tried to read the book i have no idea why but she got to that attack and what she told me was i don't have a place in my brain to catalog something like that and it made me a little sad that i did that there's a place where i can put something like that where it's walled off enough there's a there's a calloused enough part of my sensibility that I'm not just destroyed by that scene. It's kind of sad. I'd like to let that part of my soul regrow a little bit. And I've been thankful for the ways that God actually has allowed me to become more tender over the years since I've stopped watching stuff like that and reading stuff like that as much. But it was just interesting to have someone who's largely innocent of those kinds of things just say, you know, I don't have a place for this. There's no place to take this idea of what happens in that scene and put it there's i can't there's, there's nothing i can do with this besides be horrified by it for the next couple of days be bothered by it not be able to work not be able to sleep and that's how you should actually that's the experience you should have if you try and undertake the foolhardy task of reading this book 
Mm-hmm. Anyone have any other thoughts about Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy? Are people going to, are the hipsters out there going to say we gave it short shrift? Yep. Yep, probably. Do we care? Nope. nope. Okay. Is there anything else we need to say to head them off at the pass? Look, we all have things in our lives that shook us awake to our own depravity or whatever at various points. And there are ways that some of us may have gotten fixated by that on, on that sort of thing. And I can absolutely forgive somebody for for getting fixated on McCarthy or on this book at a certain point in their lives. You feel the horror of death and suffering and pain and hell as you read it. And that that can have a a powerful effect. Well, if you've gone, grown up, for, for example, with Joel Osteen, it can be a breath of fresh air. Hey, someone else sees that the world actually sucks. Right. Thank you. Thank you for not lying to me. But they're, they're... Then you grow up. Immature. And if you can't mature beyond that, then there's a problem. I certainly would never give McCarthy to somebody as a way to help them. No. <laughs> push through that McCar- McCarthy's not my first choice for somebody coming out of Joel, Joel Osteen's church no there's a lot of more healthy ways yeah here's some McCarthy I guess all I'm saying is I get it we get it and we get it on an artistic level and we get it on a I'm sure there are, there are people listening who McCarthy's very personal for because it was their first time processing their own depravity and the depravity of the world yep me I just mean, like it, Dostoevsky is for some people just like Flannery O'Connor is for some people, just like whoever else. But there has to be a a maturing beyond Mm -hmm. living there and being stuck there. Yep. Although we will decide later whether some of those people are worth maturing into or out of. (sighs) Namely Flannery O'Connor coming up later this year, folks. Here she comes. Brandon, do you give the BO whatever, the bring your own body odor? Beer, body odor to McCarthy? The BSOA? The BSOA. BSOA. No. Mm. Jake, BSOA? Nope. It's a really good book. No one should ever read it. That's my take. I don't feel like being cagey about that. I've had limited luck being cagey about the things that I admire on the bookening, so I'm not going to be cagey. Cormac McCarthy is a genius, and no one should read him. Bravo. That's, That's my take. All right, guys, let's do, uh, I was going to say, let's do Blood Meridian. Let's do... Donor shout-outs. Donor shout-outs. Brandon, you shout them out, and then Jake, you describe how they're going to die. All right, the immortal Chelsea E. This is going to go over really well. The immortal Chelsea E. Completely. Yes. She's going to completely die? Yes. Okay. Oh. (laughs) Nathan, not me. Nathan, not Nathan. Decisively. Uh, Jimmy Beam and little Annie Oakley. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Irreparably. The Lily of the Valley. Lily of the Valley. <laughs> Inextricably. Whoa. No, no one will be able to explain Lily's death. No, that's, that Lord would have been inexplicably. inexplicably. You're right. Inextricably just means that no one will be able to extricate. Andrew and Esther and Little Baby Timothy. Andrew and Esther and Little Baby Timothy. Irretrievably. Inscrutable Jenny Z. Inscrutable Jenny Z. Scrutably. <laughs> oh, people will understand her death. Uh, Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Totally. Tubular. <laughs> Righteous. Totally. <laughs> John and Jill, and little baby Max. John and Jill, and little baby Max. Completely. The Keith Master. The Keith Master. Punctually. Punctually. Right on time. <laughs> right on yeah, time. Yeah, death row or something. <laughs> uh, David's Mighty Men Trucking. <laughs> David's Mighty Men Trucking metaphorically <laughs> yes my beloved mother beth nathan's beloved mother beth truly 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 i'm not guaranteeing anybody a peaceful death truly dear gosh we still need to come up with a clever name for them but tonight they're ryan and judith the lovebirds ryan and judith the lovebirds once 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 Lee. once is a good movie Did you see it. once did you see once? No, I had it rented from Netflix one time, but I never oh, watched it. It's a good movie to watch with your wife. It's a romantic movie. Da 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 Danny. Da 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 Danny. Not dubstep Danny. No, not dubstep Danny. This is male Danny. Danny boy. Danny the dude. Danny boy. Diabolically, darkly, disastrously. <laughs> nope. Not making any predictions. Uh. In a hot air balloon. <laughs> <laughs> Have I used definitely? Definitely. DJ Danny, the dude, is definitely dying. DJ Sammy G. DJ Sammy G, wicka wicka. 
Wicca, wicca. Literally. Maya! Maya! Uh, Unquestionably. Unquestionably going to die. Good one. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese. Unambiguously. Mm. Mm. You can't really guarantee that. Yeah. No, you can, given enough time. What if they spontaneously combust? What if they just disappear and no one ever knows what happened to them? A hundred years from now, we'll be pretty sure. We'll be pretty sure, but I don't know if we'll be certain. Uh, Spoiler warnings. In the future uh, bookening episodes, we have some spontaneous combustion coming up. Yes, indeed, we do. And it is one of the weirdest chapters in all of literary history. (laughs) (laughs) I just read the introduction that he wrote in defense of spontaneous combustion. Yeah, that's hilarious. Uh, Benny and Dana T. Benny and Dana T. Conclusively. Uh, Eric Damn. and Catherine the Lovebirds. We have a lot of these, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> Surely. Surely. Surely they Surely did. Uh, and finally, finally, Professor and Lady X. Professor and Lady X. Really. 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 You're really going to die just like everyone in Blood Meridian. Well, you won't die exactly like them, but never know. You'll, well, (laughs) Jake's not making any predictions. (laughs) That's true. See you next week, folks, for something else. Everybody, the booking was written and produced by Brandon, Jake, Nathan. Executive produced. Brandon didn't have anything to do with that. Yeah, I didn't do anything with that. You did not. You're not an executive. But Brand, uh, who? What are their names? Jake and Nathan. Executive produced it. Leave us a nice review on iTunes. Hey. Go to social media, look at stuff there, at Warhorn Media, at The Bookening, on your Twitter, on your Instagram. Follow Warhorn Media. Go to our website, warhornmedia.com. Lots of great content. And yeah, back next week for Lear. What are we doing next week, guys? King Lear. King Lear. Lear. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.